0: Hi, and welcome to Studio Time. I'm Matthew Carey, and this is a podcast about the big and small ways in which artists can change the world. Join me to discover the unconventional approaches that creatives have developed to generate unique results in their lives and careers, and learn how you can apply these ideas to transform your own work. My guest on this episode, Scott Perry, is the founder of Creative on Purpose where he helps creatives fly higher in endeavours that make a difference. He's also the author of The Stoic Creative, and his new book, Endeavour, Thrive Through Work Aligned With Your Values, Talent and Tribe. I've come to know Scott over the past year or two, as we travel journeys that are similar in many ways. Although I learned more about Scott's history in this conversation, we share a musical background, mine as a pianist and Scott's as a guitarist, As we talked about his philosophy and approach to teaching guitar, I could see how he has transferred and transformed his strengths and success in the teaching studio to his online platform, BeCreativeOnPurpose.com, where he welcomes all types of creatives. Scott embodies many of the qualities that I think are essential for an artist to thrive. He is intentional about the work he is doing, who it's for, and why it's meaningful. I know that his wisdom and generosity have made a difference in my life, and with any luck, in this episode, I've offered him the chance to do the same for you. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Perry. Hi, Scott, and welcome to Studio Time. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. It's my pleasure to talk to you. Your podcast was the very first podcast that I appeared on, so it's great to introduce you to the people that are listening to Studio Time. No,
1: oh, it was a great episode that you participated in, and I am very, very appreciative
0: of being given the opportunity to speak to your audience. I thought we would start this episode by going back a bit. And I know that you describe yourself as a husband, a father, a teacher, and a musician. And as far as the teaching is concerned, I'm wondering if we could start with you telling me about a teacher that made a difference early in your life. I'll share two teachers that made a difference, and
1: there have been many. So in the interest of uh, being forthright and honest, I was a difficult child growing up, and there was a a point when I was in the seventh grade when it appeared to my parents and probably to anybody else watching that I was – Uh, headed in a direction that was not very healthy for myself or anybody else. And my parents sent me to a private school that was in the town that I lived in. So I was a day student, and it just so happened that the headmaster of the school lived across the street. And because uh, he knew me and he knew my parents, um, there was some financial considerations that were made available. And I went to this private school, and it literally Changed the trajectory of my life. I was for the first time in very small classrooms where teachers were deeply invested in being teachers, in cultivating and enhancing the lives of young people by making them think critically, by having them engage with great works of literature and with big ideas, and teaching in a way that encouraged us to come up with our own ideas about things it was a completely transformational experience. And I had a bunch of great teachers. But one of the most important was a teacher that I had in a language class that began with teaching Latin. So at the whatever the ripe old ages of a seventh seventh grader, 13 or 14, I suppose, Mm -hmm. I began studying Latin. And one of the things that I was translating was the maxims of Marcus Aurelius from his book, The Meditations, which was originally published in Greek, but these snippets had been published in Latin. And I was so taken with those translations that my Latin professor gave me his personal copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And that book had a profound impact on me. So that was my first great teacher experience. My second was, as a musician, I had a lot of experiences with really bad teachers as a youth. And when I went to college, I retook up the guitar for probably the fourth or fifth time after four or five failed attempts. And I met a teacher that just knew exactly what I wanted and was able to get me there as quickly as possible. He was a musician who also was a teacher and he was a teacher first. And so one of the reasons why my signature reads husband, father, teacher, and musician is because that's kind of my own priority order for how I
0: how I prioritize my life and, and my vocations. That's really interesting. If we could unpack a little bit of that, you started off by saying you were a difficult child. Um, <laughs> if we dug into that a little bit more, how did you know? How did you know you were a difficult child?
1: Um, well, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I, my father was, I was born in an army hospital in Oklahoma, in a town that no longer exists in a, in a fort that no longer exists. And then my father was in um, employed by the telephone company, Ma Bell, as it was called back then here in the States. And we moved around a lot and moving around a lot when you're a pre-adolescent and an adolescent is difficult just because it's difficult to make friends. And uh, I was going to schools that had very large classroom sizes, and I was mostly interested in just kind of hiding in the back and not even being seen. Uh, when you move around a lot as an adolescent. The groups that are willing to take you in immediately are usually not the high achievers and the uh, and the good kids. So I ended up most often hanging out with a tougher crowd that was involved in doing uh, tougher things. And yeah. I was a troubled young man. And
0: uh, I guess that's as much as I have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to pry, but I think it's it's interesting, the, the labels that we carry around. Mm. And do you think, looking back, were you intending to be difficult or was that the label you heard of the behaviour you were using?
1: Uh, I think that was... A, a- Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, as a young person, you're just looking for belonging and you're looking to be a part of some sort of group in school. In some ways, at the time, it seemed like a way of just surviving the the experience of being in junior high and high school. And then, but at the same time, I definitely remember feeling like I was better than the behavior and the attitude that I had. My parents certainly had faith in me and they cared for me enough to take action and try to to resolve the situation. But when I went to this private school, there were teachers that just were not going to allow me to settle for less than the best That I was capable of. And that was a completely new experience for me. And I immediately responded to that. And I went from being a young person that really didn't give a flip about school and didn't really have any aspirations for anything beyond getting through it and being done and whatever was going to come next, you know, after high school, to being somebody that was deeply invested in knowledge seeking and articulating ideas and exploring ideas and uh, you know just was surrounded by teachers and fellow travelers who I looked up to
0: and aspired to be more like. yeah belonging is obviously something that we we crave especially when we're younger but I, I think that continues throughout our lives. as you were talking about, surviving, I thought about somebody that was moving from school to school was being uprooted from one place and dropped into a new place and having to make connections. I imagine that you would use whatever tactics you could find and maybe the quickest tactics you could find to survive like that. So that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. Well, it's easy to make it sound more dramatic than it really was. But for the most part, I grew up outside of Boston and then outside of Springfield, Massachusetts, both cities that have a reputation as, you know, having a, a tough side. And there was difficult, challenging, scary stuff going on in the playgrounds. And so, you know, maybe survival is a little hyperbolic, but it's not too far a stretch from what was actually going down.
0: Did you know that you wanted to move into teaching early on, or did the music and the performance side come first? No, oh, no. So the experience of going to the school had a profound impact on me. And I knew
1: very early on that I wanted to be like the teachers that were bringing out the best in me. And I wanted to be one of those people that made an impact on young people's lives by getting them to aspire to their better angels. I actually went to school to become a teacher. I initially thought I was going to be a classics teacher because one of my earliest influences was a classicist. And then when that didn't work out, I moved to my second choice, which was to be a a history major. And I I actually did end up teaching history at the, well, really at every level, junior high, high school, and, and even at the collegiate level, immediately out of college. I didn't really pursue my musical aspirations until I was in college and then when I bumped up against some difficulties that are just inherent to the educational system here in the States, I decided that I was going to pursue my musical interests. I'll say that that was mostly because on a financial level, I didn't have too high a bar to meet in terms of being able to make a living as a musician, as opposed to being able to make a living as a school teacher.
0: Yeah. You talked about how the guitar teacher that really helped get you going knew exactly what you wanted and helped you get there quickly. What did that mean for you as a student and how does that influence the way you teach? I certainly aspire to be
1: like the teacher that I met in college, but I think my teaching approach is actually way more informed by all those negative experiences I had in trying to become a guitar player as a 9-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 16-year-old, and so forth. I realized that the people that I was learning from were not really very interested in being teachers. They were musicians that weren't able to make a living as a musician. And so teaching was just a way to turn a few bucks and help make ends meet. I definitely remember when I started my teaching studio that I was going to be not like any of those early teachers that I had and that I was going to do everything I could to listen to the aspirations and the intentions of the people that I was teaching and try to get them to achieve their goals as opposed to just being an instructor that was kind of dripping out information from a a method book or trying to teach simply what i knew instead of teaching what people actually wanted to learn i think for me music is a language we learn how to use language long before we go to school and learn how to learn our alphabet and learn how to spell and learn the rules of grammar we learn language by using language Anybody that comes to take on an instrument has already a lot of musical knowledge. They understand rhythm. They can respond to it by dancing or clapping or tapping the foot. They understand melody because they can sing, whistle, or hum a song. And all they really need is a little bit of harmony and a little bit of knowledge of how songs are structured and then... The whole world opens up in terms of learning songs and starting to communicate through this
0: you know beautiful language of music. There's a few key things you want to open the student up to in order to introduce them to a new world of possibility, I guess.
1: I definitely like to let students know early on like what I think music is for. And what music is. I mean, I've already mentioned that music is a language. I also think that because it's a language, languages are used to communicate, connect, and collaborate with others. Very early on, I introduced my students to the idea that, you know, we're going to, at the earliest possible moment, do what we do in public in front of others. We're going to share our talent and what we're doing with an audience. We're going to attempt to collaborate with other musicians and learn the give and take that's necessary to make music with others. I guess the most important thing is that we're going to remember that we don't work music, we play music, and therefore we're going to have fun and embrace this idea that we are playing music and that part of Playing is that we are going to embrace the idea that sometimes things may not work out just the way we want, that sometimes we're going to really embarrass ourselves and make mistakes, but that this is the path towards excellence as a musician, as a communicator, and as a performer. As musicians, we have the opportunity to enhance our lives by enhancing the lives of others by sharing this gift.
0: The idea of of learning in public by taking your music out of the bedroom where you practice by yourself and start sharing it with other people, whether it's with other musicians or with an audience, is a really powerful step in building confidence and maybe starting to discover who you are as as a musician or as an artist. And I wonder whether you've got any examples of how you've had to learn in public or you've chosen to learn in public. I don't think anybody takes up an instrument with the idea that they're going to play in their bedroom for
1: their stuffed animal collection for the rest of their lives. But somehow when you first tell a student, hey, it's time for a recital or we're going to do this show at a local venue for your friends and family, then suddenly there's all sorts of things that happen. And there's a lot of anxiety for most students, regardless of their age, about standing up and being seen, speaking up and being heard. There's the real opportunity to start to talk about things like one of the one of the things I share with students before their first public performance, and that when they're asking me, How do I not get nervous? And I said, Well, you're you're going to be nervous. I mean, that's just part of it. If you're not nervous, then you don't care. And if you don't care, you don't belong up on stage. So anxiety in a way can be viewed as a gentle tap on the shoulder, reminding you that what you're doing matters and it's significant and it's important and should be taken seriously. It's also the opportunity to put things into context. And one of the things I like to say to my students is if you serve the song instead of trying to make the song serve you, things generally go better. Your job as a musician is not to, Put forth a performance in order to acquire attention and status and profit. Your job is to serve the song and to serve the audience through the song. And if you simply pay attention to your job, generally takes care of itself and sorts itself out. It's just a way of taking all of your ego concerns out of the equation and you can concentrate instead on the craft. That's really where I think. The magic happens, and where we truly begin to improve our
0: own well being and our sense of happiness and accomplishment in what we do. You mentioned that your Latin teacher eventually gave you his copy of the Marcus Aurelius book. And I know that you've made a, a habit of giving books to your students. I was wondering if you'd tell me about that, what it means to you. Well, I definitely have shared. Marcus Aurelius with students
1: over the years, but more frequently, I share books like Stephen Pressfield's War of Art, which talks about an artist's journey and dealing with what he calls the resistance, but what you and I might call anxiety or fear. And I definitely have also gifted uh, books by one of our shared mentors, Seth Godin, both Footprints on the Moon, which is a book by Seth that you can only receive as a gift. Uh, it's not available for public purchase, but if you write Seth, he'll sell you copies. And I've bought those by the dozen and given them to to family, friends, and students. And then uh, there's another book called What to Do When It's Your Turn, which is more or less a graphic novel about the idea that we can choose to pick ourselves and level up and engage in work that is meaningful that makes a difference that enhances our lives by enhancing others and that although there are challenges involved that the work itself is its own reward i love books i love real books even though i publish ebooks i don't read a lot of ebooks and there's just something really powerful You know, I pick up Marcus Aurelius' meditations every day and sometimes just open to a random page and will read an anecdote or two. And it has a profound impact on my day, regardless of how many times I've read that
0: passage before. And I think I've seen in some of the videos that you've got online, your bookcase in the room (laughs) that you filmed it. And I imagine that there's a number of books that have pride of place there in that bookcase.
1: Well, there's there's more than one. You're seeing one bookcase of two that are in this room and there's a third in the room next door. I have a very difficult time letting go of books rather than give my own copies away. I typically buy extra copies to give away. I love having even books that I haven't touched in years. I can look at them and I am reminded of the impact that they've had on me at some point in the past. And it just is a way of reminding me that being grateful for having had this journey that I've been on for 54 years now.
0: Wonderful. I've got a question for you and you may well reject the premise of this question, which it will be answering itself. But I was wondering how you think about balancing teaching or what a student wants to learn versus what you think it's important for them to know?
1: I think that a teacher must do both. So I live in an area of the country where bluegrass and old time music is really popular. I tend to attract students that do not want to learn that. Uh, Because even though it's popular in this area, it's not popular in the culture right now. Sure, Uh, And so I always like to start where people are. So if somebody wants to learn contemporary gospel music or they want to learn pop tunes or they want to learn classic rock tunes, we almost always start with their interests. And I, I actually call that setting the hook. If I can get a student to learn a song that they're deeply invested in in the first two or three lessons, I can probably keep them on the hook for a good long time. And while I am always eager to serve the journey that they are setting for themselves, I'm also eager to enhance that journey by bringing in other influences. So for instance, I feel like jazz is a currently underappreciated genre that has much to teach us about life and collaboration. A lot teaches us just about joy and self-expression. If I say, let's learn a jazz tune, most of my young students would say, no thanks. But if at a certain point I say, Let's take all the stuff we've been learning about learning how to read music and picking melodies and sight reading and all that and let's let's take the song somewhere over the rainbow that you probably know. Let's learn to play it, but let's also learn how we might make this melody our own and how we might actually improvise over the chord changes and create our own melody. Most students naturally like idea that they're going to play a very well-known tune their own way and that they may actually play their very own melody. Well, they don't yet know that they're improvising. They don't yet know that they're playing a jazz standard. They're just doing it. And then, you know, I can introduce another song and then another song and then another song. And suddenly they are finding themselves playing jazz and actually really enjoying jazz. I don't see that necessarily as tricking them into it. It's just sometimes we don't know what we like until we're exposed to it. If you've never tried sushi, you're probably not much interested in sushi. But if yeah. you <laughs> somebody serves you something and you eat it and like it, and then they say, oh, that's that's sushi, then suddenly you're
0: a sushi lover. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were talking then, I was connecting some dots of my own and I was remembering back to a couple of weeks ago, I was having a chat with my nephew and he's in a twist because next year at school, he doesn't want to learn German. And I was talking to him about how it's not just about learning the words and the grammar, that when you learn a language like German, it's an entry point into learning about a different culture and a different part of history. And then making the connection that you set up that music is a language, I realized that by learning different genres of music, we're doing the same thing. We're learning about different cultures, we're learning about different parts of history. It gives us an opportunity to discover a lot more than just the notes and the musical style.
1: Yeah, well, the other thing is, as you get exposed to other genres of music, and as you grow to appreciate them, you can circle back to the basic principles. And one of the things that I like to share at the beginning, in addition to you know, kind of the three basic elements of music, two of which we already have some knowledge of in terms of melody, rhythm, and and harmony, there's only 12 notes. And all the music that we're familiar with, is made with those 12 notes. To me that is just absolutely mind-blowing and it's what before I learned any music theory, before I learned how to read music, I always viewed music as this magical mystical thing that nobody really understood. And when I put myself through the journey of learning how to read music and learning the basics of music theory and the basics of classical and and jazz theory. Uh, And I realized that this is, this is all there really is these 12 notes. I mean, it didn't, it didn't disabuse me of the fact that this is a magical, mystical thing. It actually enhanced it. Yeah. We can have Tchaikovsky and Robert Johnson and Django Reinhardt and Charlie Mingus and, You know, you just go on down the line.
0: They all are playing with the same 12 notes. Just blows my mind. And communicating the same basic human emotions too, but in very different ways, right?
1: Yeah. Music does speak to our aspirations and our basic needs. They're all just different ways of telling the same stories, I love the directness of the blues. I love the sophistication and the playfulness of jazz. I love the simplicity and directness of country music. And I love the the playfulness and the drama of, you know, rock and pop music. And I love the sublimeness of gospel music. It's, there's all these different nuances and layers kind of inherent to every genre. And the more you are able to embrace them all, the more completeness, I, I think, we've, we have as human beings and
0: the more connection points we can have with with others. That's a great way of looking at it. If we took a step sideways, so we've been talking about music for quite a while, and you told me that you you studied to be a teacher, but... Interestingly, although you and I are both musicians, it wasn't as musicians that we first connected. And it seems to me that you discovered the ideas that you wanted to teach applied to musicians, sure, but they applied to other people as well. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about how you began sharing your work with that different audience. I see music as just a filter, a filter that I use to see the
1: world. And I think that we're all teachers. Some of us are teachers in a way that we enhance other people's lives by empowering them and giving them opportunities and and providing guidance and direction. And then sometimes I've found that some of the most profound um, knowledge that I've learned has have come through really negative experiences with teachers as I kind of laid out with my musical education. Teaching you what not to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I call it the negative archetype. The teaching is the most important thing. It is the gift that we have to share with others. And at the same time, everybody that would come into contact, there's an opportunity there to learn something and to see them as a teacher. Even in the worst exchanges, There are opportunities to practice the virtues of patience and humility and acceptance. I just think that it's really important for us all to see that we are teachers. And then if we can accept that, we then can seek to be the best teachers that we can be and to try to enhance and elevate the lives of others as opposed to being instructors or academics that are just trying to master material for our own personal gain or to persuade or get other people to, you know, believe what we believe. I think it's, it's most important that we seek to share knowledge and to understand each other and to just try to enhance the landscape for all of us.
0: On a practical level, I mean, we know now about the studio that you've got where you teach in person which is in Floyd and Virginia, but you also have a studio, if you like, online where people can join you and learn from you and with you there. How did that start? I
1: do have a music teaching site that's called godguitarlessons.com and that's primarily just a business card for my in-person lesson practice. I did make uh, an effort to try my hand at online teaching, and I didn't find that satisfying in the same way that in-person teaching is. But my primary endeavor online now is Creative On Purpose, and that is a teaching platform of a very different kind. What I'm trying to do through Creative On Purpose is help people step into whatever's next for them with integrity and intention, to help them identify work that makes a difference and to align that work with their values, their talents, and their tribe so that they can experience more well-being while they are enhancing the well-being of others. And that's
0: my primary online teaching tool at this point. Is that something that's always been important to you, Scott? Or was there a, a point somewhere in your career or your development where that started becoming more pressing for you?
1: The big shift for me was when I participated in the All-NBA in August of 2016, which is a program that's created and run by Seth Godin and his team. When I joined that program, I kind of felt guilty because I've had a really good run doing work that I really love to do with people that I really like to work with. And I've made a living as a musician and a teacher in a culture that doesn't really value either of those pursuits much. I've raised a family and I've lived in homes that we've owned and we've driven cars that we've owned. And that's, I think, when you think about making it as a musician, I think if you make enough one day to get up and do it again the next day, I think you've made it. There's not very many people that call themselves musicians that are able to do that over the period of years that I've done it. But at the same time, I kind of felt like there was something else that I wanted to do. And I felt a little bit guilty about that because I felt like my life was really good. And who was I to think that there could be more? And what the Alt-MBA showed me was that, number one, it reintroduced me to my love of writing, which I had kind of lost touch with. It reintroduced me to the idea that working with others in collaboration makes good work great work. And it also revealed to me... That inkling that I had that I was capable of doing and being more and better was true. And it encouraged me to lean in to this idea that I could level up in endeavors that matter. When I exited the Alt-MBA, I wasn't clear on what was next, but I was pretty sure that it was going to be more than just teaching people how to play the guitar It's taken a year and a half or so of thrashing my way to clarity by blogging and broadcasting. But I have, by looking back at my own journey, seen that there is a system and a a process that I've used to thrive in creative endeavors that a lot of people find difficult. And so the Creative on Purpose site is really just helping people by sharing the concepts and the exercises and the practices that I found useful and that I've taught to others along the way and that they found useful and that I'm just trying to help more people live a life that is both creative, but is creative in a way that is
0: both intentional and is done with integrity. It's wonderful. And I'm a big fan of the work you do there. As you were talking about that idea of of stepping into something new and how you came from a situation where life was pretty good. I wonder what was that, that step of reimagining yourself in a way or, or doing something different or new, what was that like for you and maybe what was it like for you within the context of the people you loved as well? I mean, was there any pushback? What was the response from your wife and your family? The truth is,
1: my wife had been familiar with Seth's work for much longer than I. And when I became aware of the Alt-MBA and I was investigating it, you know, it's not an inexpensive program, especially for somebody that's self-employed. And I really, I began to have doubts that this was something that we could really afford and that was really going to be worth the sacrifice. And my wife literally demanded that I apply and insisted when I got accepted that I go ahead and join the program. And so if it hadn't been for her, uh, she could be very persuasive. <laughs> so if if it hadn't been for her, I don't think I would have done the program. I could have very easily talked myself out of it. So I'm very grateful to her. Paying for that program that summer uh, meant that we were not going on our vacation that summer. And so my, you know, my boy's were also sacrificing, but they also really supported and believed in me in the same way that they've supported and believed in me through my entire life as a musician and a teacher. Things have not always been easy, but they've recognized that this is who I am and this is what I feel I've been put on the planet to do, and this is um, this is work that matters to me and that I just can't imagine doing anything else. When I went through that program and went through this transformation and then was talking about other things that were not necessarily music related, there was no, there was nothing but just go. I mean, they they saw that I was lit up, that I was really engaged and that I was passionate and I was doing my best to do things with as much intention as possible. One thing that my wife certainly recognizes, but my boys do too, is that I am persistent and I will see things. I, I will I will do everything that's possible to bring about the results that I seek to bring. And I've had nothing but their, their love and support through all of it. And I, I feel that the work that I'm doing and the programs that I've done All MBA, you and I have been in the marketing seminar. I'm now coaching in that program and in another program called the Bootstrapping Workshop. That these programs don't just make us better at marketing or writing or leading or starting businesses, but they actually make us better people because at the heart of all of it is the idea that we have to have integrity and we have to engage others with empathy. We're charged with the idea of service to others, not just serving our own selfish needs, wants, and desires. I'm not sure what else matters, but my lifelong interest in stoic philosophy has taught me that virtue is the only true good. Virtue is the only thing required for well-being and happiness. And I feel like as long as I'm cultivating virtue and excellence of character, I have all that I need. And I have everything that I need to
0: give to the people that I love. Well, that obviously speaks to the strength of your family. The support that they've shown you is wonderful, but I'm sure it speaks to the way you show up for them as well. That when you found something that you were excited about, that they wanted to support you and they were willing to let go of the status quo in a little way to let you try something new. One of the reasons we're talking now is that you've just written a new book called Endeavor, And somewhere early on in the book, you talk about an endeavor is more than a hobby, but not necessarily your job or role. It's a vocation found at the intersection of who you are, what you're good at, and where you belong. An endeavor is work you are meant to do. In terms of an artist, maybe who's listening to this podcast or somebody that doesn't necessarily consider themselves an artist, but has art and creativity within them. I think that's an interesting idea to unpack. An endeavor can be something that we do because it's important to us and we think it's important to the world. And it doesn't have to be our entire identity. It doesn't have to be our job. It doesn't have to be who we are all the time. A job is a respectable, honorable thing. Sometimes we
1: just do a job because we have to make a living. We have responsibilities to ourselves and others and our creditors. And we put in the time that's required to earn a living. And then if the job is not something that we're deeply invested in, in terms of our passion or purpose that we feel that we were put on earth for, that's fine because most jobs afford us the time to do other things. And so an endeavor, sometimes I think it's best that The things that we're most passionate about, we don't turn them into our job or career because when you are trying to make a living from something that you love, making a living sometimes requires that we make concessions, that we do things that are not in total alignment with who we are and what we believe or what we value. It can be really stressful and cause a lot of anxiety to have to make concessions about something that we love. I feel like there's absolutely nothing wrong with having your passion project or your purpose project as kind of your side thing, something that you're working on alongside of all of your other responsibilities while you're engaged in a job that's just kind of paying the bills. I think it's the holy grail if your vocation ends up being your career. If the thing that you feel like you are born to do or that you're meant to do or the thing that you are deeply committed and find great meaning in doing is also the way that you earn a livelihood and I feel like music has been that for me and I feel like this other work that I'm doing is becoming that for me and the thing about engaging in endeavor whether it's your career or whether it's a side project is that you are cultivating your well-being by aligning your values, your talents, and your tribe. Your values are your guiding principles. Your talents are the things that you are actually really good at, usually less to do with hard skills that you learned in school or on the job, but more to do with basic emotional labor, interpersonal skills, your ability to communicate and collaborate with others. And that when you have those two things, then you can find people that share your values and need your talents to enhance their lives or need your talents as a collaborator, then you found your tribe and you found where you belong. The intersection of those three things is where we can find meaningful work and work that will kind of enhance our lives as we
0: seek to serve others through that work and and elevate their lives as well. You ask a really interesting question in the book, or two interesting questions. What does it mean to be human And what does it mean to be happy? And I think maybe in your answer, you talk about why you feel it's important to make work that is important for people other than just yourself.
1: To me, it's just a basic part of what it means to be human. We are social creatures. We are conscious apes. (laughs) And if you look at where we come from, we come from social creatures. The only reason that humans dominate the planet the way they have is because way back we banded together in an environment where we were not the fastest and not the strongest. And the only way to survive was to band together. And that banding together led to communication, which enhanced our brain power, which created language, which created the ability to create everything that we see in the world today. It's just undeniably scientifically proven that we are inherently social creatures. And as social creatures, the only way that we can achieve happiness is by getting along with each other and by serving others, which I believe is the only way that we can actually serve ourselves. If you look at the state of the world now, our survival kind of really will depend on whether or not we can get past all the selfishness and the stories that we are telling ourselves about each other that really are not serving us and in many cases are not true so i think the social element is really important and then the other point i make in the book is that we are also inherently rational creatures this is something that came about through our social nature and You know, we may not always see the evidence that we are reasonable, rational creatures when we turn on the news, but it is a part of who we are. And if we can embrace our social nature and develop our capacity for reason, I think we have the best chance to not only survive
0: as a species, but to to thrive and make the world a better place. This is not your first book. You released The Stoic Creative a, a while back. What was the impetus behind this new book? Why did you feel the need to create another book?
1: I wrote The Stoic Creative because I was thrashing about for a project after the Alt-MBA. And in the midst of my first run through the marketing seminar, which was the very first session, I exited the Alt-MBA knowing that I wanted to do something with my lifelong interest in ancient Stoic philosophy and my lifelong interest in being a creative person and developing my creativity. I decided that I would just marry those two things. And so the Stoic Creative was born and I just was sharing all the exercises and concepts that Stoic philosophy had taught me and how they informed my creative journey. As grateful as I am for that book reaching an audience and for all the positive comments I've received about the book and for all the good that I feel like it's done for people, I didn't feel like it was certainly my best work. I don't know of many authors that feel like their first book is their very best book. And so the book Endeavor, which is releasing at the end of November of 2018, is my attempt to write a better book, to write a book that is less overtly stoic (laughs) and more answering the questions that you just shared. I mean, I I believe that if you're going to engage in meaningful work, you need to wrestle a little bit with what's the meaning of life. And I feel like the meaning of life is answering the questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be happy? How can I be more of both? And I don't think that those questions have absolute answers. And I think that we all will come to our own understanding of what those things mean. But the only way that we will arrive at answers and continue to clarify answers is through meaningful work. Endeavor is all about how you can identify, develop, and start delivering work that makes a difference
0: to the people that you care about. One of the questions that I thought about as I was reading Endeavor was how do we, as artists in particular negotiate the tension between wanting to stand out and wanting to fit in?
1: I feel like meaningful work is work that seeks to make a difference. It seeks to change the status quo. And you cannot change the status quo by doing things the same old way that they've always been done. And by doing the things that you've always done, when you decide that you are going to try to change things. You are, by definition, going to stand out. People are going to notice (laughs) that you're not going along and doing the same old, same old. There is a lot of tension inherent in that we are programmed evolutionarily to fit in. We live in a society that rewards people that have mastered the status quo, that have earned confidence and certainty about the things that already are, but the mastery of things that are already are and the confidence that comes from that is not going to improve the lives of ourselves or others. And so we have to instead cultivate and embrace a posture that accepts that the things that we are trying and the ideas that we are sharing may not work doesn't mean that they won't work, but we have to change our relationship with fear and failure. So if you are experiencing anxiety about trying something that you've not done before, I feel like that's a really good indication that you are engaged in an endeavor that's worth your time and your talent and your effort. Fear only shows up when You're putting yourself on the hook because fear wants to keep you humble and hiding. In a way, fear or anxiety is a gentle tap on the shoulder saying, Hey, this is important. You should pay attention. But instead of running and hiding and going back to the same old, same old, you can then say, Oh, thank you, fear, for pointing out that this is important, that I should be paying attention, that I may be headed in the exact direction that I need to go. And then you can become a little bit more intentional about. How you decide to step into whatever's next. Another thing that's really important in the age of certainty and confidence is to recognize the importance of curiosity and courage because that is the antidote for certainty and confidence. If you're going to be engaging in new ideas and new activities, trying to improve lives of yourselves and others through meaningful work. You're going to have to ask more questions and you're going to have to tap courage more often. You're going to have to embrace the idea that the work itself and the posture and mindset that you are engaging as you step into uncertainty is that that is the reward. Chasing fame and fortune is not going to enhance your life. It's the posture and the mindset of the curious and the courageous that is going to give you a sense of well-being and is going to cultivate a sense of meaningfulness as you
0: continue to lean in. this great, Scott. This a bunch of pull quotes from that last answer that I could pull out and share with people. It's wonderful. And certainly people that go to your site for creative on purpose will discover you talking about that and, and demonstrating it over and over again. I think you are certainly living what you teach to circle back and finish up people that were looking at Scott Perry pre seventh grade would maybe describe him as a difficult child. How would you hope that people who look at you today describe you? That is an interesting question.
1: One of the things that I've learned through my long study and embracing of Stoic philosophy is that what other people think and what other people do is beyond my control. It's not up to me. All I can do is to try to be the best person that I can be and to try to do the most good that I can do. I have to be satisfied with that. Now, maybe that can influence other people's opinion or maybe it will influence my reputation, but ultimately I can't control the thoughts and behavior of, of others. And so as I grow older, I am totally satisfied <laughs> with just doing the best I can with, you know, what little God gave me and trying to do the most good that I can and to continue to cultivate the good within me. And I have to leave the rest up to whatever others decide.
0: I agree. There, I understand what you're good. saying there totally, but let me just try and put you back on the hook a little bit <laughs> okay. because you did own the label of difficult child once upon a time. So, let's rephrase the question. How would you like to think of yourself? What label would you like to give yourself tonight when you're thinking about your day, when you're thinking about your life before you put your head down on the pillow?
1: I think that I think I've always been a seeker and that I have always sought to know myself and to know more about the world. I have always been very interested in connecting with and learning from others. And so I guess if I could determine the way that others perceive me, I guess the word that I would use would be fellow traveler.
0: Great. I love that. There have been people that I've spoken to for this podcast that I ask them questions about themselves and they answer about themselves. One of the things that I love about talking to you, Scott, is I ask you questions about yourself and you answer about others. You answer about the world. And I think that speaks to the fact that you are somebody who is devoting yourself to creating a life that serves others. And I want to thank you for that, for continually showing up in that way. It makes a real difference. Well, thank you very much,
1: Matthew. And I got to say that uh, it's really – exciting and inspiring for me to see you leaning into a brand new endeavor of your own and that you are sharing your unique gifts through this process of interviewing others and helping share their uniqueness too. But
0: I I deeply appreciate the person that you are and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Where can people find more about Scott Perry, Creative On Purpose and Endeavor Online? If you go to becreativeonpurpose.com,
1: that is the easiest way to connect with me. If you're interested in the upcoming book, go to endeavorbook.com. There are currently the preface introduction and first two chapters are available i'll share the third chapter before the book is released and the people that opt in for the free previews are also going to get early access to the book when it
0: releases on amazon and will also get the deepest discount on the book itself generous as always thank you very much for your time today scott it's been wonderful talking to you my pleasure matthew thank you so much You can find the notes, links and resources for this episode at studiotimepodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing to Studio Time in your favorite podcast player and take a moment to share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.